This is an I Am Listening original podcast. If it wasn't for Abigail's for us, I think I'd have been in a very dark place for a very long time. They've continued to be a support nearly six years on for me. I wish that Abigail's could be everywhere because the support has been paramount in our journey. Welcome to A Journey with Abigail's Footsteps, a podcast about the difference this baby loss charity is making to lives across the country. I'm Nicola Everett, a very proud ambassador of Abigail's Footsteps, a charity that supports families at the most difficult time and provides training to healthcare professionals. Sadly, in the UK, it's estimated that one in four pregnancies ends in the loss of a baby. Despite that figure, it's still something that many find difficult to talk about. About and families can face a wall of silence. We're hoping this series of podcasts will break down that wall. Parents will be sharing their own experiences, which at times may be difficult to listen to. But we will also hear their inspirational stories of resilience and hope and how you can get involved in making a difference to so many amazing families. Hello and welcome to episode two of A Journey with Abigail's Footsteps. For the first part of this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by three incredible mums who are going to be sharing their experiences to help break some of the baby loss taboos. Molly Hope, Sarah Conroy and Dean Oakey, welcome. Thank you ever so much for joining me. Molly, if we could start with you, if that's okay, can you firstly tell me about your experience? In 2017, I had my first born son in November after a very perfect pregnancy and a very uneventful labour, I guess, up until the point of delivery. He just, I gave birth and suddenly it all went wrong. Um, He came out not breathing, had the crash team come running in and performed CPR in front of us in the room with all the doctors, the neonatal teams. He, to no avail, they worked on him for 32 minutes and once they'd stopped chest compressions and everything else that they attempted to resuscitate him with, he passed away in front of us and had to have a post-mortem. Six weeks later, we found out that there wasn't much that they could do to have prevented it and we lost our little boy. Absolutely devastating for that to happen to you and as you said, you had no idea that there would be anything wrong? No, no idea. The pregnancy itself was a low risk. Everything was perfectly normal, fine. I felt amazing. Labour was like any normal labour. Contractions, stick fast, had the epidural and was just waiting to dilate to 10 centimetres to deliver him. And at the port, that point, there was still no alarm bells ringing. I delivered and he passed away. He just, there was no... No warning signs for the team that were delivering him. He just didn't make any any noise, didn't make any effort himself because he was just so poorly. But we never really got an understanding as to why it happened and what could have been prevented, if anything. And when you were in hospital, like... All mums, you were expecting to bring your little baby, your son Blake, back home with you. You then had to face that 
awful, awful time where that wasn't going to happen. But what did Abigail's do for you when you were at the hospital? So we were taken to Abigail's suite, just off of delivery suite, and we were provided a cold cot and a cuddle blanket. And this meant that it preserved him a little longer than nature would have taken its cause. So it allowed us to bring all the family up, anyone that wanted to meet Blake. It allowed us to do this. It gave us the opportunity. We got some beautiful family photos, photos with our family, with Blake. Memories we wouldn't have had without Abigail's. Abigail's provided a little SD card that went into a camera, which allowed us to take away all those photos. It gave us everything that we would not have thought about had we not lost him. Those little things mean the world to us now. That's all we've got to cherish. Those little bears that they give us. Um, They provided a book that we could read to Blake while we were there and then take that away with us. Little things like that are big things to a bereaved parent. Those are the things that got me through it and got my partner Mike through. They're things that we've got a big old memory box now with so much in although he only lived for a short amount of time we've got this big box full of little treasures that Abigail's provided by just setting up that suite and providing all that we needed inside. Obviously that's helped you hugely do you think it helped your wider family as well? Yes my family were they were there within minutes of me calling them and all of them got photos with with Blake. They got to come and comfort me and Mike and they didn't feel as useless, I guess, being that close to us. They could stay for as long as... They were there until midnight, a lot of them, on the day I gave birth. It helped them massively because they, they were a part of it. Abigail's provided the space, the safety net that we, we needed as a family. Sarah, if we can chat to you, your your son Kit passed away in 2021. Can you just tell us a bit about what happened? Yeah, so I had a completely normal pregnancy with Kit up until about 34 weeks when I suffered a major bleed. I was ambulanced to hospital and after a couple of days in hospital, I was released. Uh, they did their scans. They said everything was normal. It was just a bleed with unexplained origin. And then a couple of weeks later, I passed a clot and went back in just to get it checked out. They assumed that it was old blood from the previous bleed and then said, well, it's probably best to get you induced. And so I was induced a few days later. And unfortunately, the induction method that was given is contraindicated for people that have had bleeding through pregnancy. When I went in, when I was induced, went into labour, I had a massive bleed lost I think in total over three litres of blood I had a crash cesarean they got him out as quickly as they could I think it was like 17 minutes they got me down there and him out which was amazing and they called my husband in whilst I was being uh, transferred to surgery he came in was congratulated on both of us having a baby within minutes he was then told you may lose both of them and We had to make the decision about four and a half hours later to turn off his life support, which was pretty hard. 
awful, awful experience for yourself and your husband to go through. As you say, the medical teams did everything that that they could on that day. Were you able to spend time with Kit afterwards? Yeah, so they made a big effort to because it was in the midst of COVID to get us up to the neonatal ward. Um, So we were able to spend time with him whilst he was still alive when he was on life support, which was amazing. And then when we went back down into the bereavement suite, we did get to spend some time with him. We didn't spend as long as we could have just because I found it quite difficult when he started to look like he had passed away. So we... We spent that night until about nine o'clock, so four or five hours with him, um, which is, it, it's weird in hindsight that I was, I would think I should have spent more time, but all of the things at the time, we were just like, no, 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 we didn't want photos. We didn't want, and then we just said, oh, just do it, just do it. And we are so grateful that we changed our minds with those photos and getting those things done. But just listening to what Molly said about the support that she got from Abigail's, I wish that we had had that. We didn't. We weren't in Kent. And actually, that support, yes, we had bits from different charities. It wasn't a joined up um, sort of experience. I interacted with uh, Abigail's actually because I had been appointed a counsellor via the hospital, a bereavement counsellor. And Unfortunately, that experience was woeful. Uh, it was via Zoom, obviously, through the pandemic. That was the norm. But, but this person just sat there and said, oh, that's sad, all the way through the appointment. And I was like, yes, I know it is. Um, so I actually went searching to find some extra help. And I found Abigail's. I'd moved to Seven Oaks two weeks after Kit was born and found Abigail's. And their counselling with Naomi Marston was just to say that it was a big difference from what we had experienced is just the biggest understatement. It was so helpful. Like, I will thank Naomi for the rest of my life for that support. Because without it, both me and my husband, who had PTSD from everything that he saw, found it so beneficial. And it's still now we will have a session, you know, when we're looking at kind of milestone events like birthdays or when our son Cooper was born in March. We knew that that pregnancy was going to be really filled with anxiety. So we set appointments. We made sure that we were seeing Naomi for, for that support again. And, and it was so important. Thank you so much. And we'll talk a bit more about other children that have been born after the loss of a baby just a little bit later on. But Dean, I want to come to you. Would you mind telling us your story? Yeah. So my son, Archie, was actually born asleep at 36 weeks. Um, I actually knew that I was giving birth to a baby um, that wasn't alive. Um, again, I had a very normal pregnancy, very healthy, grown baby, and all of a sudden, one day I just woke up and realised that he wasn't moving um, as much as what he normally would be. He used to wake me up every morning, kicking my ribs, but this particular morning he didn't. But I wasn't really... I suppose I was a little bit naive in the way that I was quite young. It was my first pregnancy. I didn't really understand what that meant. So I kind of just went about my morning. And then when I'd mentioned it to my mum, she was like, oh, maybe you should ring the hospital and just go and get checked. Um, So that's what we did. And 
we were sat in the waiting room and we was laughing and joking, not even contemplating what was to come. And then we got put into a little side room and the monitor was put on and the midwife couldn't find anything. So she said, then a doctor's going to come in and just give you a quick scan. And then the doctor come in, he put the scan on my belly and I could just see from the look on everyone's face that something was not right. And in the next breath, I was told, I'm really sorry, but he's got no heartbeat. And I don't really know what happened after that. Uh, it's quite a blur. And then we was put into another room and was talked through induction and how I'm going to give birth to this baby and everything like that. And then I was just given a pill. I was sent home. I was still pregnant. Obviously at the time, I didn't know what was coming. I, I was just scared. And then two days later, I think, I ended up back in hospital. And then I gave birth to my baby in a silent room. And I just remember the midwife holding him up in front of me and just thinking, like, can you do something? Because it was like he was all there and he should be alive and it just looked like he was asleep. And they put him on my chest and it's all a little bit of a blur, really. And what was it that Abigail's did for you? Were you in touch with them as soon as you knew what was going to happen or did the hospital speak to you about what Abigail's could do and and how maybe they could support you after that? So I was told about Abigail's when I went back into hospital and it was, I was moved into the Abigail suite. I think it was the next morning after giving birth. I think I gave birth to him at eight in the evening. So then I was moved in the morning and then the same as Molly, really, they did pictures and things to make memories. And to be honest, I'm so grateful because when you go through that, your head isn't thinking about making memories and you're just kind of living in the moment and in total shock, not even realising what's just happened. And I think having them there to say, oh, let's get some pictures, let's do this, let's do that. I'm so grateful because I don't think I would have thought of half of the stuff that they did. Like they cut a lock of his hair, so I have that. And all of the pictures, I have a little teddy bear. So they put a little teddy bear to put in with him and I had one. And then we swapped when he had his funeral. And yeah, and I also, a little bit late, found Naomi. I didn't actually know she worked with Abigail's. And I was searching for someone to speak to because... I was just really struggling. This wasn't until about a year later. I think I was in denial about a lot of my feelings and what had happened. And then I finally found Naomi and she was just a lifesaver. She saved my life. I don't know if I'd be here today if it wasn't for her, to be honest. It seems those memories that you perhaps hadn't thought about have now, for all three of you, become so incredibly important how regularly would you say you need that time to perhaps look at those photos or go through that memory box or maybe just speak about your baby is it something you do quite regularly or is it more say 
at times of anniversaries and things like that. Molly? So I have his bear beside my bed. We've had Blake cremated, so he's with us at home in our bedroom. So his little bear that we got a duplicate of, that Blake took one with him, uh, sits on top of him next to our bed. So that's every day, every day I see that and I get great comfort from that. At the very beginning, that would sleep in bed with me because it smelled of him because we'd changed it so it smelled of my baby. His memory box I go to fairly often and the pictures, I go through them all the time. At first, it was very hard to to flick through them and to have that reminder of it just brought everything to the surface as if it had just happened. But now they are they they're a comfort. They I go to them all the time. And Sarah, how important is it to you to to talk about Kit? It's my way of parenting. He was my child, and every other parent who has a living child gets to talk about their child every day and. It isn't separate for me. It isn't one of those things like we were talking earlier about how difficult it is when people say, is this your first, etc. And in the same breath, I'm always willing to talk about Kit. He is my first child and I'm very proud of him as my first child. And I love hearing his name and I'm very lucky that I can hear his name quite often because of pee kits and first aid kits and other types of kit kit cats I eat a lot of them um so I'm quite lucky in that respect and yeah it it doesn't change your want to parent doesn't change I have found that my way of parenting kit is to bring awareness to baby loss to try and make people feel less alone that are going through it to open myself to other people going through it and say, if you want to talk about it, I'll be here for you. That's my way of parenting my child that's not here. And memory boxes are just so important. I mean, I'm so jealous that you've got photos with him. I mean, I have so, I mean, we have photos of him in our bedroom wall. Um, So we see him every day. We still decorated the nursery, how I was going to decorate it. It's still uh, Kit's room. It doesn't make me sad anymore. Those those beginning weeks, yes, you know, it was difficult. But actually now there's an element of peace of going and sitting in Kit's room, looking at things that were his, that we've now passed on to brothers. And that's so important. Dean, you mentioned how the counselling that you got from Abigail's essentially saved your life. Have you been able to to share your experience much with others? Because I'm guessing before what happened to you, you hadn't really spoken about the possibility of this happening when you were pregnant. It's not what mums want to talk about, is it? You don't that doesn't even cross your mind. I know from my own experience, you're always a little bit apprehensive about the baby, but you don't think that your baby could be born asleep. It was never on my mind. I mean, I don't want to say that I didn't know that it could happen, but I don't think I really did know it could happen, or at least not to me. So before it happened to me I would never never have known that it would and I think since having Archie um, and definitely speaking to Naomi I'm very open about Archie and he's my firstborn son and I will always talk about him because I just feel like if I didn't talk about him it's like he was never there and he was there he is my child and 
I just feel like I never want him to be forgotten. So I do talk about my experience. Sometimes like people might ask questions and things like that, like, oh, have you got any children or uh, is it your first child? And then you kind of have to say, well, actually, no. And then you see the look on their face and they feel like really sorry and they might say, oh, I'm so sorry and things like that. But I always say to them, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. Like I'm not telling you because I want you to feel sorry for me that that happened. I'm telling you because it's my life experience and I do have a child and I want to talk about him. For those of you who've had other children, how difficult was that decision? Because I... I can't put myself in your shoes, but I can imagine that after going through a very, very traumatic experience to then decide to have another baby must be incredibly difficult. Molly, you've got two little boys, haven't you? Yes, a little uh, ray of sunshine. Um, I didn't think after losing Blake that we were going to go again. Mike was very much, he couldn't handle another heartbreak. He, he didn't want to try again because he didn't want to watch me go through that. And to have the outcome we had, he was petrified. After a little while, we agreed that we would try again. I was destined to be a mum and him a dad. So we went again and fell with Jensen pretty quickly after the decision. So it was done. He was he was growing nicely. He came in the nearly two years to the day later. He was born five days earlier um, than his big brother's second anniversary um but it was a very emotional time throughout I didn't want to let what had happened with Blake tarnish my pregnancy I didn't I know that sounds bad but I didn't want to dampen I wanted to enjoy Jensen's pregnancy I wanted to enjoy what was to come and I just thought for me i I did think lightning won't strike twice. I'm going to have a happy, healthy baby. And in November, he came out screaming and, well, it is the best decision we made. And then, yes, we've gone on to have a third little boy, Reuben, who we had in December 2021. Um, But it was a hard decision, yet the best. Do you talk about Blake to them? Yeah, well, we've got photos in the house of Blake um, and I've got a big canvas of me holding Blake in our front room. And Jensen's recently been saying to me, Mummy, is that me? I say, no, that's that's your big brother, Blake, who lives in the sky. And I tell him that he lives in with the stars. Well, being the summer that he's been asking, he can't see the stars by the time he's in bed. So we've got a little crystal in the front room that's got Blake's face in it and he pretty much every day we'll pick it up and say that's Blake Blake's in the sky so he knows that he's got a brother I don't think he obviously hasn't grasped the concept of what the sky means and that he did ask me if he could come to his house and play um the very first day we had the conversation which did make me shed a little bit of tear but that was in his head how it works your friends and your family come to your house to play so it was hard but it's nice that I can involve Blake in our family conversations at home, every day-to-day life. He's he's there. He's They will grow up to know who he is and that he was their big brother, but ultimately he, he lives in the stars, in the sky. 
And Sarah, for you, you mentioned that your husband actually suffered PTSD after your experience. So it must have been incredibly difficult to even have that conversation about having another baby. Yeah, it was it was interesting because for me, there was no doubt. I've always wanted to be a mother. I was a mother to Kit and I wanted the experience of having a living child also. My husband was not ready, but we knew that because we had struggled to conceive with Kit, we'd tried for four years. We were about to have our first IVF appointment in that we were about to have our first meeting and then we found out they would fall pregnant naturally. So it was a, like our miracle. We knew that given those years of struggles that it wasn't going to be straightforward and term was not on my side, she's aging. Um, so we uh, kind of set a date to start IVF. I kind of, I needed the control and I think part of that Thinking back to it was because of the blood loss that I suffered every month when I'd get my period, I'd have panic attacks because I'd be losing blood again. That combined with not being pregnant was just too much from a mental health standpoint. So we decided to do IVF and that again wasn't straightforward. So we had our first round. Uh, I was told that I had two follicles, which is very low. Um, and so they, they wanted to cancel it. But actually, uh, one doctor was like, no, let's go ahead. One is better than none. So let's see what we get from the two. And we ended up getting one embryo. And that is Cooper, who was born in March, which we didn't even think, you know, yes, one embryo, amazing. But it, the 50-50 chance of that even sticking was just, you know, odds that we just thought weren't going to happen. So again, it was just so surprising. We found out at our first scan that he had the exact same due date as his brother. And to a lot of people, they said, God, that must have been so traumatic. I mean, it's how you frame things. We found that so beautiful. Like, it was like a gift. Yes, it meant that the timescales were completely the same. So you're going, ah, yes, this is Christmas. I remember last Christmas. So it was very anxiety-filled. And because of my experiences in my pregnancy and and. Uh, my placental abruption. I had extra appointments anyway, but we really had to monitor that closely. And so Cooper was born through a planned cesarean, which meant that we could decide, obviously with the consultant, the date that that happened. So I didn't want to, them to share a birthday. I wanted Kit's day to be Kit's day. And so we ended up having Kit 10 days before, uh, which he needed to come early anyway, but 10 days before Kit's birthday. So we had the chance to, as a family of three, celebrate Kit's second birthday, which actually was really lovely. Obviously, Cooper is still very tiny, but do you plan to tell him all about his big brother? Oh, yes. I mean, Kit has a older stepbrother as well, uh, Seb, who found it really difficult because he was uh, nine years old uh, when it happened. And all he wanted to do was meet him. Kept on saying, I just wish I could have met him. I just wish I could have met him. And he's, I, he still feels like that now. Um, we talk about him his bedroom, his nursery is still Kit's room. So they share it. Uh, there is, you know, a pictures of Kit there. There's Kit's dinosaur toy, Julio. Don't know how we decided on that name. But he has a mini version. We've kind of had to come to the conclusion that in the first instance, it was really tricky. And every time one of us would accidentally call Cooper Kit, we'd feel just heartbroken. But then actually, when you have two living children, 
how many times have I called the dog Andrew or caught, you know, everyone mixes up names and that's just part of being a family. And actually it brings him into the family even more, those those mix ups, because that's what would have happened if he were living also. It's really an interesting dynamic. We will continue to talk. We have his memory box. Everyone now has one. We've decided we've got a memory box for our wedding. We've got a memory box for Kit. We've got a memory box for Cooper. We're going to kind of delve into them and share the experience of it all. There was a pregnancy loss review published very recently that had more than 70 recommendations of what needs to happen in hospitals. 70 recommendations seems an awful lot, doesn't it? That there is still a lot of work to be done to support mums and dads going through this. If there was one thing, you've all been very lucky and had an awful lot of support, but Dean, if there was one thing that you would want other mums in future to be able to to benefit from if they have to go through something like this, what would it be? Um, It would definitely be to have something like the Abigail suite because it took you away from that hospital environment. It was more like a home outside of home. And when I was in there, I didn't feel like I was in hospital. And it also gave me that time with my baby to cherish because all I have with him is two days in the Abigail suite and those memories I'll cherish for the rest of my life and also the Abbey Colcotts were a godsend because obviously they preserve the babies for a little bit longer so it gives you that time you and your family time to spend and make those memories so I definitely think there needs to be one of those suites in every single hospital. Molly, you also benefited hugely from um, Blake being able to spend some time in an Abbey cold cot. Um, What else would you like to see done for other families? A lot more support. If they don't have an Abigail suite, they obviously get a bereavement team. But that bereavement team starts and stops at the hospital. It doesn't come away with you, as I found out firsthand. If it wasn't for Abigail's, for us, I think I'd have been in a very dark place for a very long time. They've continued to be a support nearly six years on for me. I wish that Abigail's could be everywhere because the support has been paramount in our journey. I actually think as well more access to counselling. Like Naomi, I didn't actually know who she was and I luckily found her myself. But more access to that. So bereaved parents being told that they can see seek help from people like Naomi because it doesn't just go away. And even if it's like for me, it was a year down the line when I knew that I needed that help. I think there needs to be more access to, to that, those services, because it did really help me. And I don't know what I would have done without her. Sarah, what, what would you like to say about that? I think that, interestingly, the reason that I think that we've been so affected by the counselling that we received is that it is specialised baby loss bereavement counselling. It is not generalised bereavement counselling. And there is a difference between those two things. And it may not seem it to people that haven't experienced it, but were you on mourning the hopes and dreams of a life that could have been, your expectations of what should have been. You don't have the memories of 
the years that you were able to spend with each other, which have their own kind of intricacies of hurt and pain, but it is different to mourn something that never got to be. So that's kind of one element of it. I've had so many awkward conversations with people about uh, baby loss specifically, and even those in the medical profession, which when you've trained as a doctor, a nurse, uh, a midwife, you are bound to experience loss as part of that. And yet the training within loss in those specific baby loss areas is woeful. It's, it's so small a part of the courses that they do, if not non-existent in some medical courses, that having specific training in what to say, because you only get one chance to get it right. You can say the wrong thing and it may not be even a kind of glint in your eye. You may move on from that comment, but it will live with those parents for the rest of their lives. They will be able to recall every interaction from those days. So to have the training and to understand what is helpful to say, training on how to speak to individuals that are going through that awful experience is key because you will never get those words back if you say the wrong thing in the same way that the parents will never get that time back when they're trying to desperately treasure every second that they're having with that child. And just to echo what the other ladies have said, it's it's when you leave the hospital, you, you know, it doesn't just stop. To leave that care at the doors is really difficult and helpful. And actually, all of those things could be changed. But I think a lot of it has to be changed at a government level. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your stories. I know it's not easy to talk about, but hopefully speaking about Blake, Kit and Archie will really help so many other families. Is there anything that anybody wanted to say about Abigail's? The work that they do and the continued support, not only for parents, but for midwives and bereavement midwives especially as well, to, for us to assume that this doesn't affect them, their mental health, People will take what happened to Archie, to Blake and to Kit. They will live that till their dying day also. And so it's wrong for us to not mention how this will affect the people that were involved in their care. And Abigail's gives them that support as well. It should be, in my eyes, you know, rolled out nationwide. That would be a joy. Baby loss charity Abigail's Footsteps offers counselling for grieving parents and specialist bereavement training for midwives and healthcare professionals. With compassion and care, Abigail's Footsteps has provided solace to countless bereaved families across Kent and the UK. Their Abbey cooling cots have allowed hundreds of parents to cherish precious moments and make memories with their baby, additional time they thought they might never have. Your generous support help and donations will make all the difference in enabling this incredible Kent charity to continue their invaluable services. To learn how you can make a meaningful difference and support Abigail's Footsteps, visit their website at abigailsfootsteps.co.uk. My next guest on the episode is Sam Collins, who is an ambassador for Abigail's Footsteps, but also the co-author of A Pregnancy Loss Review. Sam, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about this review? I've had a look at it. It's incredibly detailed. What was your involvement and how did you get involved in that review? Yes, so um, myself and the co-author, 
Zoe Clark-Coates, who is the CEO of the charity Saying Goodbye, Married Poser Trust, were invited by Jeremy Hunt um, back in 2018 to review the care that families who are experiencing a pre-24-week loss, so essentially people that are experiencing a miscarriage, receive, um, and whether it would be possible to look at the introduction of a certificate of loss, um, but also to look uh, more broadly at improving NHS gynae and maternity care for families that are going through baby loss at any gestation, really. But I think it was essentially to look at um, pre-24-week loss because there have been huge improvements over the years in terms of support for people experiencing later baby loss, such as stillbirth and neonatal death. But sadly, those improvements haven't been shared with parents who are experiencing early loss, um, which includes miscarriage, termination for fetal anomaly, ectopic pregnancy and molar pregnancy. So we were invited to lead this review Um, And as I say, it was back in 2018. So, you know, it's five and a half years in the making. And at that time, we were, well, I'm an NHS bereavement midwife, and I was seconded for six months to carry out this work. And I think it became apparent very quickly that this task was massive, and there is no way that it could have been completed in six months. And so it was extended. However, um, the pandemic came along, Brexit came along, and the team that we were working with in the Department of Health were redeployed to other areas of work. And so the work was paused a couple of times over the years. Um, And so really, over the last, I would say, two years, we restarted working on it. A lot of things that we'd looked at in 2018 were out of date. So we had to do a lot of the research um, and meeting with stakeholders, engaging with different groups of people. And we had to revisit all of that um, and make sure that, you know, all the stats and the data and the research was up to date. So it's been a huge task and it's a huge relief that it's now actually published finally. I've had a look at the reports. There are over 70 recommendations. I mean, that is an awful lot of recommendations from, well, I thought it seemed like an awful lot of recommendations. Does that show that things really weren't working very well before you started to look into this area in more depth? Yes, I think you're right. Yes, there are a lot of recommendations. There are 73 in total, but that reflects the scale of the problems that exist. And so, you, you know, like yourself, you know, when I was um, first tasked with doing this review and, you know, I kind of had no idea that there would be this much to do, you know, we could have wrapped it up and just focused on half or even less of those um, main problems. But we want to make sure, you know, that we left no stone unturned in our attempts to improve care for families. And the families, the brief families, were at the very heart of, you know, the review and, and the feedback and the stories that they shared with us, sometimes very harrowing stories of, you know, very cool care that they'd received and how traumatised they were. You know, we felt that we really owed it to the families to ensure that everything was in the review, that we, you know, discovered, you know, anything that needed an improvement and, you know, needed to be in there. So, 
the government were pleased to say um, in their response, they've actually accepted all 73 of the recommendations, which, you know, there are a lot, but, you know, it's, it's fantastic that the government are backing this, that will be implemented. Obviously, as you mentioned, there are an awful lot of recommendations. We can't go into every single one of them in depth. But what are you hoping overall that this will achieve? You've spoken about how you had a lot of feedback from families. Some of their stories were incredibly harrowing. For others who have to go through this really awful situation in future, what are you hoping that your work will achieve for them? I think, you know, there are so many elements to caring for a family who are experiencing loss. And I say family because, you know, all too often the focus is on the woman or the person that is going through baby loss and not their partner. Um, And partners are equally impacted. Um, And, you know, we've heard throughout the process, you know, that partners were sidelined or sometimes not even asked about how they were, um, you know, and it's really difficult for the person going through baby loss to actually get really good quality mental health support following the loss, but even more difficult for the partner. So obviously we want to see improvements in physical care for the person going through the loss, but just as importantly, we want to see that mental health screening, mental health support and services are offered to both parties um, and and actually the whole family because we know that siblings are also impacted, grandparents are impacted. So it's looking at it holistically really uh, and looking at, you know, the family unit if there is one and and looking how best we can support that whole family and, and just improving the overall experience. And also we just want to make sure that, you know, through better education and training that staff are made aware you know of the impact of baby loss because for too many years I think miscarriage and very early pregnancy loss has been minimized and often seen as a bit of a clinical event Um, and we've heard this time and time again from the families that we've met with that you know some of the families that have been through A&E, for instance, have not had the best experience. And this, you know, is down to a lot of factors, but a lot of it will be down to a lack of training and education of staff because, you know, as we know in A&E, it's, it's you know, it's on its knees, isn't it? Um, emergency services and, you know, there are so many different things coming through the door. It's, you know, they probably get very, very little in terms of training and education the staff around how to support families experiencing baby loss. And we know that, you know, A&E is not the best place for anybody miscarrying to be, you know, ideally they would be in an early pregnancy assessment unit. But with early pregnancy assessment units, we know that there's a huge variation in the opening times and the access to EPAUs. Um, Some some areas um, will have early pregnancy assessment units that are open every day, including the weekend. And then other hospitals will have an early pregnancy assessment unit that's only open in the morning and not at weekends. And so, you know, women are forced to go through A&E. And as I say, it's not really the best place um, for anybody experiencing baby loss to be. You've been involved with Abigail's Footsteps for quite some time now. You were a trustee for around seven years. You're now an ambassador. It really sounds like they were leading the way and an awful lot of parts of the country can learn from what Abigail's have been doing. Is that kind of what you felt from doing this review as well? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll always be grateful for the opportunities that were given to me um, as a trustee. You know, it's great to be working in partnership with Abigail's, you know, and I was involved in um, the, the new film, um, Pregnancy After Loss, which is the follow-on film, as you know, from The Deafening Silence, which has reached so many healthcare professionals across the UK and actually internationally too. And that film, which is shown in so much of our midwifery, healthcare professionals training, um, you know, it's reached out to so many people, um, you know, and who wouldn't necessarily have um, any kind of training, any kind of um, time allotted to baby loss education. Um, and, you know, a lot of medical staff have seen that film um, and we know that medical staff have hardly any time given you know, when they're at medical school in terms of um, how to support families and the emotional impact on families of baby loss. So, you know, it's been a real privilege to be able to work in partnership with Abigail's. Sam, it sounds like the work that you've done and will do going forward is going to make a huge difference to an awful lot of families who I'm sure will be incredibly grateful for what you've done. So thank you ever so much for being on the podcast and talking to us about it. Thank you. My next guest on the podcast is Amnit Graham, who set up Willow's Rainbow Box charity to help parents who are having another baby after a loss. Amnit, thank you so much for chatting to me. Would you firstly mind by just explaining why you set up your charity and what the inspiration was? Yeah. Back in 2017, my husband and I had a missed miscarriage where we weren't aware that we were miscarrying until we went for a scan. And then obviously our lives kind of changed a bit after that and it was devastating. And then we fell pregnant again the year after, but that was a new struggle of its own. I was so anxious and so worried and I couldn't find any specific support that was there for me for that pregnancy and for my husband as well. So when my daughter Willow was born in November 2018, not long after that, I decided I wanted to put something together because if it, if it didn't exist then I wanted to make it exist and that was the inspiration behind starting Willow's Rainbow Box. So you decided to start up the charity yeah. yourself. <laughs> Tell us how it works. So the idea came to me in sort of March the year after so it was March 2019 and I was like well do you know what I want to start something and I didn't know at that point it was going to be a charity. I just knew I wanted to do something. So I went to my local voluntary office and said, this is what I want to do. What do I need to do? And they said, you need to find a team of people. So went to social media and that I found we ended up being a team of six very quickly. Uh, obviously, there were people who were just so passionate about this as well. So we formed a team and then uh, we kind of had our first meeting in the May 2019 and then by December 2019, we were a registered charity. So everything moved very quickly. And that was the end of 2019. We spent some time, sort of six months within that year, designing the boxes, designing what we wanted and doing research, market research to see what people would need. Then we uh, started our trial in January 2020 and then COVID hit. <laughs> so, yeah, we we kind of had all of that time out, really. Uh, but we kind of used that time to do more research and find out more about dads and other parents and what kind of support they would want. And, yeah, just building on our market research in that time because COVID just you couldn't do anything. And at, after COVID hit, actually, we decided to 
post our boxes. So before that, we were getting people to collect them from different places. Then we went uh, for the postal option and that allowed us to open up to more areas. And yeah, from this year, February 2023, we went England wide. So, and it's, uh, yeah, it's really grown from that. So tell us what's in the boxes and and the aim of the contents and and what you hope it it does for not just mums, but dads as well. Yeah, yeah. So we are focused on sort of giving positive and practical and emotional support. So the boxes have got, they've got a journal in them and we've got a journal prompt on our website that people can think of things that they want to log in them. Hope and support cards, which have got like one side has got a positive message. One side has got a mindfulness technique that they can try like together or as a family. We've just added a colouring page and pencils as well for like the, you know, the adult colouring, which has been quite therapeutic for people. We linked in with other charities as well. So we've got things from Kicks Count in there, like their wristband and some of their leaflets about the Doppler campaign. So we know a lot of people want to reach for a Doppler after they've had a loss because they've got anxiety but it's just not the best thing to do so we've got bits about that Uh, we've got the resource for the other parent which is heavily on our website but we've got a leaflet in there which uh, basically we've got a hypnobirthing track for them we've got practical ideas and support packing hospital bags a birth plan they can do together We've also just introduced a pregnancy after loss little business uh, site, like a business uh, card size resource, which you can take in. It basically just says, I'm pregnant after loss. This might be difficult for me. And it's just to take in if you're going to a scan or if you're going to a consultant or seeing someone new, just so you don't have to repeat yourself and your journey. And we've got a rainbow print so it's just, it says look for rainbows and it's just a a5 print which is just to signify the new pregnancy and something as simple as that little business card to yeah. say this isn't my first pregnancy yeah i have had a baby before but i lost that baby and to give that to someone because you you see various different people yeah. don't you yeah. during the stage of your pregnancy is very unlikely you see the same person and and it is tough to to keep repeating a story. Yeah. Did you find that quite difficult when you were going through your second pregnancy that you were having to tell people the same thing over and yeah. over again? Yeah. Obviously, whenever you're going for a scan and you're not going to see the same person in your 12-week scan as you see in a different scan and also just seeing different midwives or if you end up in the antenatal clinic, you just don't know who you're going to get and... I know some people have like stickers on the front of their folders, which is great as well. But this was just a quick heads up to give to the person that was in front of you caring for you at that time, because it's just it can get overwhelming and tiresome having to repeat your story over again and explain why you're feeling nervous or why you're feeling anxious and why you're not feeling that joy that you that you presumably should be feeling. Obviously, the boxes have done really, really well. You're you're now all up and running. Um, (laughs) How is it going? Has there been quite a big demand for them? There has, yeah. So, well, we're doing probably on average between 15 and 20 a month now. When I did our first year, it was 20 in the whole year. (laughs) So this has definitely gone strength to strength. And the other thing we started doing is giving a sample box to early pregnancy units and bereavement midwife clinics. So we are getting a trend where people are hearing more about us from their 
from their hospital care, which is great, as well as on social media. So, yeah, things are going really well. It's fantastic to hear. Did it surprise you when you went through this that that sort of support wasn't available? Because we've all seen the statistics. Unfortunately, yeah. it, it does happen to yeah. an awful lot of women and you know, and their partners as well and their wider family. Yeah. Did, it, did it kind of surprise you that this wasn't presented to you when you were it did. thinking, how do I deal with this situation when I did speak to a lot of professionals about I was feeling it was like but this is a new pregnancy you know this is not the same as your last one you've got to think positively and all of this but there was it is shocking how there was a lack of acknowledgement for all the different unique things that you go through when you're pregnant after loss and when you're anxious really really anxious about a scan or any appointment or you know and that first trimester it's going to be really difficult when you've you may not have even seen a midwife yet and just getting support in that time. I am surprised. I think there are more things being done now. Absolutely. Well, give us all the details of where anyone who's listening can go to find out a bit more and perhaps get access to one of the boxes. Yes. So to get access to our boxes, they are free for people in England going through pregnancy after loss. You just go to our website, which is www.willowsrainbowbox.co.uk and you can click on get a box and just fill out the small form there. We're on social media, so we're on Twitter if you look us up, and Facebook and Instagram, and, and uh, threads now as well. <laughs> so uh, we've got closed peer support groups on Instagram as well. We've got one for the first trimester, so anyone who's in their first trimester and pregnant after loss, it's like a closed group, it's private, and people just chat and get peer support in there. And we've got one for general pregnancy after loss as well. And we were doing Zoom sessions, which I was leading but I'm actually going through a new pregnancy again myself. So kind of doing a little bit of protecting myself at the same time. So with those, are uh, we're not doing them so much at the moment, but we will be picking those up again. And they're just nice spaces for people to come and get peer support too. Fantastic. And the name Rainbow Babies, yeah. I don't really know where that, that started. It's, I have heard it yeah, quite. It's lovely, isn't it? It's a term that it's mixed, gives mixed feelings for people. Some people like it, some people don't like it. It's uh, I think it's come from sort of the hope, you know, the rainbow after the storm that you've been through. And it's kind of become the term that a lot of people use. But we use it, but we kind of interchange it. But we know people don't like it as well. We look, use a lot of pregnancy after loss to describe what we do. So, And how old is Willow now? Willow is four and she's going to be five this year. So oh, wow. she's actually, she's starting school this year. <laughs> oh my goodness, it goes so quickly. Yep. Is she is she aware of, do you, do you talk about why her name is associated yeah. with the charity? Yeah, she knows off the charity. She's helped me do boxes before as well. She doesn't quite get it yet. I think she will. I mean, it's important to both of us that she kind of knows. There's no shame around it, Willow. Like we want her to know what it's all about. But yeah, at the moment, she's probably a bit young to understand it fully, but she loves putting the boxes together with me. Thank you to all of my guests. And on the next episode, we'll be hearing more about the Abbey Cots and how they're helping families spend precious time with their baby. Thanks for listening to A Journey with Abigail's Footsteps. If you'd like more information about Abigail's Footsteps or how you can make a difference by supporting or donating, please click abigailsfootsteps.co.uk or follow us on social media. This has been an I Am Listening original podcast. For more information, head over to our website, iam-listening.co.uk. 